This is Dennis Ramundi. I'm here with my co-host, Phil Goldberg, our podcast and YouTube channel, Spirit Matters, found at spiritmatterstalk.com. If you go to YouTube, just put in three words, Spirit Matters Talk. Uh, we have several hundred shows in our archives. And uh, in, if you're watching now or listening, click the button that says subscribe. It's free. And uh, we'd like you to do that. We are thrilled to have back on our show Robert Thurman. Uh, he was for 30 years a professor of Indo-Tibetan Buddhism studies in the Department of Religion at Columbia University. Uh, he's quite a man. In 1997, uh, Time Magazine named him as one of the 25 most influential uh, Americans. And uh, he has uh, been with the, he studied with and was a student of the Dalai Lama for 50 years. And uh, what we want to focus on today is his latest book, Wisdom is Bliss, and uh, which is out and available now. And Robert, I want to thank you so very much. And I know you just came off uh, like an 11-day retreat uh, to come <laughs> on the uh, show with, uh, with, uh, with me and uh, with Phil today. So thank you so very much. Oh, thank you, Dennis. I'm very happy to be with you guys. Okay. Um, <laughs> listeners, we interviewed uh, Bob <clears throat> a year or two ago. And so we encourage you all to uh, go listen to that interview as well, uh, and you'll learn a lot more about him. I want to jump right into this new book, which occasioned uh, Bob's return. Oh, the three show. super educations. Yes. All go. right. Oh, good. Wisdom is bliss. Back. That's it. Wisdom is bliss. That's Four right. Not ignorance. <laughs> can change your life. Um, so. I want to start with the title. Okay. I was struck by the title, Wisdom is Bliss, for a few reasons. One, <clears throat> we normally associate the term bliss more with the Hindu or Vedic tradition than the Buddhist tradition because the Ananda is yes. sort of ubiquitous term. But also, you chose to call it Wisdom is Bliss, not wisdom and bliss or wisdom uh, or bliss, bliss. <laughs> why wisdom yeah. is bliss well because reality is bliss and the life force of beings is bliss and health of beings is their bliss and bliss is that kind of energy that goes beyond the self and that melts you down and you just are very happy to let go of what you normally are kind of hanging on to, your identity and your sense of controlling what's around you and your sense of being you um, in your usual way where you might be thinking, well, it would be nice to find some bliss. But you're sort of, you, you feel that, it, you feel weird if you felt bliss in, in being you. But on the other hand, you... You want it, so then you go into various things. You seek thrills, you seek aesthetic experiences, you seek sex, you seek like skydiving or riding on a roller coaster, or anything that kind of lifts you out or a rock and roll concert of a really good artist, anything that lifts you out of your sort of habitual routines where you sort of know everything that's going to happen. And oh, yeah, I know what this is, that. And it's just I, I, I. And uh, when, you, when you melt down due to some particular situation, which we tend to seek out, 
then we call that bliss, you know. And uh, when we let go, if we fight it, of course, we call it a threatening energy. But when we let go and we go into it, you could say, we, uh, we, fight, we, it's, it's, we experience it as bliss. And wisdom is the opposite of ignorance, which, which doesn't know where it is. It doesn't know what it is. It doesn't know who you are, what you are. But, but, but it, and also, it's a very active thing, ignorance. I like to call it misknowing which is a word in the dictionary, actually. Misknowledge is a word there, but we only normally use misperception, misunderstanding. But misknowing is also there. And um, see, so it isn't really, the, the kind of ignorance that, that Buddha talked about is not really just not knowing how many fish there are in the Atlantic Ocean or something. It's just wrongly knowing that I'm separate from you and this is uh, that wall is solid over there, and this is uh, this is it. This is what is really real is the material stuff around me, and I think I know that, and I feel that, and that is incorrect actually. And even a regular Western scientist will tell me that the wall there is made of atoms, and X rays go through it, and cosmic rays go through it, and blah blah blah, and that that's supposedly more real than my perception of it as a solid wall. But there's sort of no final reality as far as modern science knows. Whereas Buddhist science, Buddha discovered the final reality is what he called bliss, void, indivisible, which can also be translated as bliss, freedom, individual, because freedom, like emptiness, like voidness, like selflessness, is a negation. And it's a negation and a neg negational awareness or a negational realization, something that opens you up. You know, it's like you're looking for the elephant in your office there. And you know what an elephant would be if it was there. And you look around, you don't find one. But you never find a non-elephant. You just don't find the elephant. So your mind is open for whatever else is going on, you know. So mm -hmm. that freedom is like that. Freedom, you're free of trouble. You're free of pain. You're free of bondage. You're free of, you know, you know this dish is free of salt. It's free of sugar, you know, some, some sort of uh, healthier thing is free of these things. That means they lack them. So bliss, freedom, indivisible means that at the very depth of everything, you find a freedom which, where, where you sort of everything that causes suffering disappears. And then the last thing to disappear in a way of real freedom is freedom. In other words, things can reappear within the freedom. Because freedom itself doesn't, you don't want that to become a prison for you, where you're isolated from everything else. So you like to be engaged, then you're free to be engaged with things. And, uh, and that's therefore where the wisdom is the bliss. And even they even say that at the deepest level, the only thing that knows the ultimate nature of reality, the, you could think of and say the absolute nature of reality is bliss. You don't know it with a normal dualistic cognition of, where, oh, I know what that is over there other than me. Bliss is what melts you down. You, let, you surrender yourself, and then you find out you're floating in this freedom. And then you also find out you're not trapped in the freedom. So then you engage with the world again in a, in a loving and happy way because you realize that that's what the bottom line is. And this is taught in the Tibetan misnamed Book of the Dead, for example, that's one of the things that helped me a lot to find it. And all of the, all of the different uh, educational methods that Buddha did. The one great thing is this. Buddha realized this himself, supposedly. He had this experience. 
And then he, but then the nature of it is so unlike what we normally experience that he openly said right away, I'm sorry, but I can't explain it to you. It's because it's inexpressible. But you, I did, I, I do experience it. And I'm confident that you can. But, and so I can, just by me saying it's bliss or it's not bliss or whatever it is, that might be helpful to point you in the right direction, but it will not help you experience it. In order to experience it, you have to educate yourself. And I will, I, here is the method of education. And I call it in the book, super education, because I want to, it's not graduate school, <laughs> which is higher education in, in our culture. Mm -hmm. And, it, you know, one reason that a lot of people like Buddhism or Hinduism or Sufism or Taoism, anything that has a meditative element, which uh, supposedly introduces them to the deeper reality, uh, they like it and they think that education will never help them get it because they think that they've had the best education there is. They went to Harvard, they went to Oxford, they went to whatever it is, Caltech, and they're still miserable and they still don't know what's going on. Whereas this is an education that if you really implement it and really achieve it, it pass the test, so to speak, you will be really happy. Let, so let me ask you a question. Title, Robert, yeah, I chose, Robert. I'm sorry, yes, what, what yeah, I wanted to ask, as we, I'm fascinated with an aspect of this, or, or I'm wanting to understand it. Yes. And that is that uh, if bliss is uh, at our essence, and, but you said that you can train yourself or learn to experience that bliss, yes. ultimately is the reality of who we are, that, that bliss experiencing itself, becoming self-aware uh, uh, self of, it, of itself or it, because if we're training ourselves to experience that bliss, who is experiencing it? Right, if, right. if bliss is yeah, at our essence, I don't know if I'm making that question clear. Yeah. Yes, that's a good question. That's the best question. Well, as I say, finally, we have to start with the caveat that it's inexpressible. <laughs> and then we can talk. So, like yeah. a scientist who says there's no final... Uh, theory, but is this more and more experience, more and more data? So, well, so with that caveat, what the one who experiences it is the one who we are now, who is a relational being. Everything about us is relational, all the way to the very core of our nervous system is, is relational. Because, in fact, uh, anything non-relational would be irrelevant, in fact. But we then have a concept of something non-relational. We think of it as the absolute, and people will say it's God. And then modern uh, rationalists and scientists would say it's what's, abs what's absolute is nothing, nothingness, existentialist, and so on. So you could have either nothingness or God to be the absolute reality. So what Buddha's discovery was he went through, met all the gods in his culture, and he explored the idea of nothingness and realized it was just an idea and it actually is an idea for what isn't there. So in fact is you never can experience it because it's not there to be experienced. And therefore it can't be a reality because it's not there. That's what it means. And, and, it's, and when you think that nothingness is waiting for you when you die, for example, then you are reifying your concept of the opposite of something. And actually, as I like to ask my scientist friends who want to debate about future life or former life, I asked them, since they are radical empiricists and they only go by what they experience, which one of them discovered nothing and got that Nobel Prize to be the foundation <laughs> of all the sciences? 
And of course, they get mad at that point. They get annoyed because it's obviously it shows the ridiculousness of thinking that nothing is something and that it's a place you can go. Mm-hmm. So what Buddha found out was that, that when you look at relative things in the way we're used to looking at them, as if each one was absolutely, if we are, first of all, we, the looker, are an absolute. And then the objects have their absolute essence in all of them. And so they're really what they seem to be. And he rejected all of that and he saw through all of that. And he realized that he was not a fixed, there was no fixed core Siddhartha, the guy in there. He was a process. He fully realized that. And then, but in the process, the way you realize that is not by thinking of it as a dogma and a theory. Okay, there's a, I just accept that there's no, there's no absolute core in anything. No, what you do is you recognize that you are conditioned to think there's an absolute core in yourself and in things. And then you try to really pin it down like a scientist. You investigate the things. You smash the atom, actually, and in thought experiment, in meditational thought experiment. And then when you do, you, you break free eventually, which every mystic has had that experience, where they come into like a space, like Meister Eckhart said, he found the desert in the heart of God, like almost like a nothingness. You know, he felt like a desert. And there are all different ways of expressing. The Hindus say they found the supreme self, which was not relating to anything. It was like a divine freedom just floating in space, just, or not even a body floating there, just being the space. But Buddha went one step further and realized that the feeling of being in an absolute and just a vast space itself is relating to having not been there. Although when you're there, you feel like you've always have, and you're that's it, which is why it can be a trap. And he 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 analyzed the freedom that he felt, and then he break broke free of the freedom. And when you break free of the freedom, you're back being Dennis Raimondi. Mm-hmm. But now, when you come back being Dennis Raimondi, you realize that Dennis Raimondi, when you go press any one point in Dennis Raimondi, you reach the space. So actually, Dennis Ramondi can be Dennis Ramondi in a lighter way, where he's aware that he is composed of an infinite number of points, which are not little dots, which actually none of which are there. <laughs> like, you know, a point has no size to be right. exact. So, so then suddenly you are a different, you, you have a different way you relate, where in a way you fully relate because there's no non-relative thing that is somehow reaching out of a non-relative essence to relate. So you flow with the, it's like a surfer who who extends their sense of identification to to the wave and to the shore, to to the floor of the ocean underneath and the beach, and who gets so attuned to the swirls and the currents and the air and around him or her, and they win the old Nobel, they win the, they win the gold medal a little girl from Wisconsin, the little the little Hmong girl, wasn't it? Oh no, that was the acrobat, the little Hawaiian girl, right? I think who won the gold medal because they're so they relate so beautifully to the swirling because they're not like a real wave and a real person on a real wave. They're a playful, semi-illusory wave person on a semi-illusory wave. And then, therefore, they can feel everything about the wave as if it was them, and then they they never get trashed, you know. So, so that's called the non-duality of nirvana and samsara, and in, and and when you discover that it is that reality is this love, and in, in an impersonal sense, in the sense that it's a bed of infinite energy, 
which is available for any need of any being that feels separate from it, based on not knowing that they're made of it. And so that's why when we sleep at night, and we go unconscious, and we no longer are guarding our boundary, our skin, our eyes, our ears, our nose, we're not making a difference between subject and object. And, but then by being wide open, vulnerable, of course, we lock the door and we're in a nice, peaceful place. But, it, but, but then somehow our cells are renewed, which would never come from nothing, could only come from a set of a, a very powerful energy. And that's, the, that's reality. So, and then knowing that is bliss. That's my, that's my, my, my message, if you will. I want to, uh, I have a, <clears throat> excuse me, a lot of questions about this very- Dennis is smiling. I'm happy, Gavor. <laughs> I am. Oh, I feel, very... I'm feeling some bliss. <laughs> oh, good. That's wonderful. That's really Thank good. You. Because it's a weird thing. You know, I, I have something at the end of the book I call my consolation prize, mm -hmm. which is I give to myself, I award to myself for being a loser, which you give, right? The one who loses the race, you give them right, a consolation right. prize, right? So I give it to myself because I'm not a Buddha. I didn't get mass. I'm not floating in air. I'm not fully enlightened. But I'm close enough that I realize eventually, given infinite, an infinity of my future continuum, I'll eventually get sick of being an idiot and I'll get there. And then, <laughs> and then what it is, is that I will realize I was always there. So I was there when I was late for a podcast with Dennis and Philip. <laughs> and and have munching my lunch like a like a slob, and 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 that was I was already in Nirvana. I would, so I would revise my nervous, stressed experience of, of forgetting an appointment, and you realize that was all part of Nirvana. In other words, sort of thing, you know. And and um, and that's my consolation that I'm going to be really happy, and I'm going to be a real winner in the future, which will enable me to realize I always was. So I can console myself that I'll 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 understand my present moment more deeply then, uh -huh. and retroactively this will be bliss, and Dennis's smile Perfect. will be the smile of the Buddha. Well, <laughs> but if you follow if you follow the advice in this book, it would be bliss now. Oh, good. Yes, that's right. Well, although maybe you won't you won't, you won't know it fully, but and that, and that's why it will still be irritating because because you'll feel that there's more to it. In other words, there's a craving for a little bit more. You see, this, and this is right in Buddha, this is not just high Tantra and all advanced super Madhyamaka or centrist metaphysics, although it is there, but it's also right there in the mindfulness sutta, you know, for the, the Theravada people, where the Buddha, that's, I'm just so happy. And Sri, I only discovered this a couple of years ago in Sri Lanka, because I had never read, I always read the shorter, Satipatthana Sutta, you know, Mindfulness Focus Sutra. And uh, I didn't read the long one. And then in the long one, Buddha gives a long list of every fun thing that can possibly happen to us. And he says, all of that is still suffering because it's the suffering of change because as it happens to us, we're not satisfied with it. And we have a craving that is nagging us and stifles our pleasure actually by saying, well, it wasn't as great as it could have been in our inside, in our mind, and in our way of our receptivity. And uh, then he comes to, the, that's the first friendly fact, as I'm calling it, instead of a noble truth, but it's the same thing, friendly fact. And then the third friendly fact is that it's actually the reality of it all is nirvana already. It always, it's the uncreated, it's always been like that. 
And so the thing they, so then when he says, well, what is that? It's you're mindful of the third noble truth in the focuses of mindfulness sutta. And then he gives the same list of all the pleasant things that happen in the world. Exact same list. Everything pleasant and agreeable that you see, hear, taste, touch, smell, think is all nirvana. Because now when you reach that after understanding the cause of the suffering and after, re- after the super educations, you, re- you, you lose the craving. So then you're grateful and delighted with whatever pleasant thing happens. And in a sense, you give yourself to it and you don't compare it and feel it's not enough because the craving is gone. And that's nirvana. And, uh, that's I, I want to ask a number of questions about the book, which... Okay. Uh, is, is, I and, and let me say at uh, some point, I'm going to be disconnected uh, through no power of my own uh, from my broadcast okay. here. And so, but... Uh, well, that's but okay, I, Dennis. As long as you leave smiling, I'll be happy. I, well, you gave me something to smile about. <laughs> that's really I, good. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sp- always happy with a conversation. Swedish. Did you speak Swedish? Did you learn to speak Swedish? No. I, I, me uh, neither. I can read a little bit. It's very difficult language. It is a really difficult language. And my wife, you know, when we go there, we have gone uh, fairly now and then. And then I I don't get to chat with people because they're so kind and nice. And they immediately give you aquavit. And you get sort of drunk pretty quickly because you don't have their tolerance. And then you can't even speak English. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly right. This book seems yes, to be yes, a bit of a departure for you. And, but, but before I ask you about yes. the content, you said yeah. earlier something about um, Buddha breaking things down into bliss, freedom, indivisibility. Yes. I'm really curious how that relates to what the Hindus would call Satchit Ananda. It's the same. Ah. It's no difference. It's perfectly different. The only thing the Buddhists would want, their friends, the Hindus, and in fact, there is a historical analysis that actually shows that Satchitananda really comes from the same movement of which Buddha was kind of the leader, although it wasn't only Buddhism. There was Jainism, and there were a bunch of other, what you call Shramana movements, which means seeker, you know, I, people translate it as ascetic, but I translate it as vacationer, <laughs> which is more like it's someone who goes to an ashram, you know, the shramana. And they, they didn't come from the Vedic thing, which was more of an activist tradition, sacrificial thing, and uh, another uh, rather sort of tribal. And uh, whereas the, the, the Panishadic movement and all of the shramana movements were, are really one movement. So that the Satchit Ananda discovery that, that people have this being awareness bliss in their mind, if they open up and look and see what's in there and really go deeper than the surface irritabilities, um, you know, that really is really part of the movement that Buddhism is part of. It isn't really, there's no really opposition. And the one place where people point for an opposition, which is supposedly the final theory in Hinduism is Paramatma, this you become, you find your supreme self. And then in Buddhism, what you find is your supreme selflessness. <laughs> so that's supposed to be opposite. But in fact, the supreme selflessness means is that you got rid of your suffering self and you find a self that is blissful. 
And but um, but if you think of the self alone as what is supreme, the danger is you'll be what I previously just mentioned and what I previously went through as trapped in the freedom, where you know you're you're yourself and it's just you and you're just all alone there, and you maybe you don't feel guilty like you selfishly left behind your loved ones, or even God, and you're just all you are God kind of thing. But um, you're isolated also from the other living being. And so you're almost, it's a, it can be that trap if you are ready to reify a state of soaring free from her habitual experience as the final state. And, and uh, so Buddhism pushes it further. And many people in Hinduism do. They have what they call post-Turiya. In other words, after you have reached the fourth state. And there's a post-Turiya there. So that's the better, that's the one that fits with Buddhism, where you, you need to bring that massive sense of blissful freedom into your relationships in the world and help others and, right. and help them find that because that's the summum bonum, you know, that's the nishreyasa, as they say. And, and most of the Hindus are into that, but there is an interpretation of Hinduism where, uh, you know, of people who are so sensitive that they can't imagine bumping it, stubbing their toe and remaining blissful. They just can't imagine it. And so they, to them, the state of bliss freedom has to be somewhere else. But, you know, yeah. the concept of else, of course, is a relational concept. It's not here, so it's somewhere else. So then that's a relational state. It can't be the final state. So Buddhist thing was by collapsing the absolute that one does quest when one wants to really know what is real, he collapsed it in such a way that he found it everywhere. You follow me by 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 at first, I guess you could say you oscillate from a from a bursting free into the space of freedom through controlling the mind in such a way to make it like a a, a cyclotron, you know, the electron accelerator, where the subatomic particle even is dissolved under analysis, you know, where its parts come apart because you're analyzing, taking it apart to find out what it is, and then it disappears under your analysis. And uh, so the mind is, can function like that and if it's very powerfully trained to be very focused. You know, take Einstein's thought experiment with which he discovered relativity and everything and then push it even further and, this, and, and go into quantum area and then even further and there's no Higgs boson or rather Higgs boson is just a relative structure and it's not the final mass because there is no final mass. You know, there's just, there's freedom. And, um, and so, uh, so anyway, so that's that's the that's the thing, and then you can educate yourself to develop that kind of skill of mind, but also you have to learn to develop critical analytic faculty to break free of concepts that would imprison you. And mm -hmm. oh, life is misery, yes, but you have to do your pay your taxes and work for the king or the president, and to go fight and die, and you know then maybe God will take you to heaven, or you'll have a heaven of nothing, that's which is anesthesia, no pain. And, uh, and uh, if you, that's how we're conditioned, to be frightened of reality and to seek somebody else's solution that they have foist upon us and expect us to believe it. Whereas Buddha wouldn't believe what they told him in his time, and he wouldn't decide that he didn't have the ability to know, although he found out soon that he didn't know. But then he deeply developed his full capacities, and then finally he came to fully experience what is reality. And then he, and then on top of that, in spite of saying he couldn't tell us really what it was in a satisfactory manner, but we could just hang on to some slogan or some credo, 
He could help us with the method where we could get out of our confusion just as he did. And, uh, and so he gave us this educational methods, really. Rather than a religion, he set up a curriculum, which, as you, as you said before, I, in the book, I call it the three super educations in ethics, in mind, and in uh, reality, in wisdom. So that's, that's, I, a, that's, a, that's a, is that, did I answer the question? I'm sorry, I get kind yes, of, yes, you, you the you age did more of than answer the question. Oh, good, oh, good. <laughs> so when I, when I picked up this book, Wisdom, yes, Wisdom is Bliss, and I, um, I was first of all surprised to see that it was published by Hay House, which uh, I've published books with, and I thought this must be a very practical book because that's what Hay House does. It's not yes. Bob Thurman, the scholar, it's Bob Thurman, the teacher. And um, when I opened the, to the table of contents, I saw, oh, look, there's 10 chapters and eight of them other than the first and 10th, have the word realistic in it. Yes. And I thought, wait a minute. As I looked a little closer, I said, this looks like the Eightfold Path, but he's using the word realistic. Yes. Where we're used to seeing right speech. Exactly. Right exactly. Tell right. us about that choice and why, why you did it. Oh, good. Thank you. That's such a good question. I really appreciate it. Well, you see... When the first uh, Anglos were starting to encounter Buddhism in Sri Lanka, a little bit in Japan, but mostly Sri Lanka, the British judge, uh, the Rhys David was a judge there, but he ran into the idea of Buddhism. And then he, he saw some people in monks who were in sort of orange thing, you know, exactly like a Western monk's robe, but he, heard, he learned that they were celibate, that they had a vow of poverty, that they lived on alms, and that they were seeking uh, some sort of high state, like a mystical state of enlightenment, what he thought it might be. He absolutely thought this is a religion I'm encountering here. So now, as far as the modern definitions, which go back to the 19th century of religions, there's a credo, something you're supposed to believe, usually a god. In those days, they were defining religion as belief in God, period. That was it. If you, did, if you didn't have a god, creator god, it wasn't a religion. But anyway, this seems to be a religion without a creator god, and that they kind of they kind of they were delighted in that, and then they took it overboard and thought there were no gods at all. But actually, there are plenty of gods. Just no one of them is the creator boss who's to be blamed for everything. This was the it was the, was the new new insight of Buddhas, and um, so they so therefore they made the noble facts satyas, which can just mean a reality, and like English word truth, it can also mean a proposition about reality. But by translating it as truth rather than reality they made it seem like a credo. So you believe in suffering, you believe in the cause, you believe in the freedom you believe of suffering, you believe in the Eightfold Path. But actually Buddha didn't say you have belief in this. In fact, he said believing in them won't help. He said, you acknowledge that you're frustrated with, uh, with changeable pleasures. You look for the cause of why you're frustrated and you can understand it in your mind because you're just, you have a distorted perception of your own way of being. You think you're an absolute core being, and then you, you, you project that into other things and think they're all absolutely different from you. And um, that's a mistake, and you can correct that by investigating them. And then when you do, you discover that what's really going on is freedom. And it's, you're very happy and blissful and not bad. And, but but you, you, in order to really pursue that, that analysis and understanding of the cause, 
you have to correct yourself on various levels. You need ethics to correct the way you behave with your body and your speech and even your thinking, thinking bad things about other people or thinking uh, foolish things, etc. And um, so that's because even your thinking is action, which is a way of relating. And if you have filled with bad thoughts, that's a bad way of relating to the world and, uh, and to yourself. And uh, then you have to educate your mind to be able to focus and see things more deeply and analyze more precisely. And then you not just be scattered and distracted all the time. And then you have to educate yourself about what things are and how causal processes work and how you get this effect out of this cause. And you, and particularly he was very big on causality because, and I, which is very scientific because at his time, people mostly thought gods caused everything and they did all these rituals to placate the gods. So the gods would bless them with good happiness and wealth and long life and whatever, victory in battle and things like that. And, and whereas Buddha said, no, gods don't cause things. Your past actions and other people's actions cause things. Gods influence you, of course. And angels, there's gods and angels and there's devils also, and they can all influence you. So there's lots of causes in anything that happens. But the biggest cause is how, what you have done and how you understand things. So that was a huge thing. And, and what's powerful about that is to try to look at things in terms of causation you then it automatically erodes your feeling that your identity is a fixed, uncaused, sort of absolute, like a little peg in the stream, a rock in the middle of the stream, that nothing changes it, and therefore it's problematic. How is it going to relate to everything? And when you think of everything as caused, then even my sense of me being me is caused, and it constantly changes. And so then you become more open to being responsible for being a stream in progress, you know, a work in progress. And then you are, you are then you, realize you need to educate yourself. So, so why I say, so then right for right path, right view, right action, right thinking, right analysis, right mindfulness, right concentration, and so forth, and right livelihood. These have to do again with the projection from other religious structures, that there's an omnipotent being who gave some laws and then if you, if you follow them, you're right. And if you don't, you're wrong. Whereas what, what uh, ethical action is, is realistic action because it has a good result. It goes along in causation. And for example, it's a, I think that's a wonderful thing. You know, one of my great loves in Western philosophy is Wittgenstein, who the, la the later Wittgenstein of the investigation was wonderful in really seeing language constructing and deconstructing, and he was just wonderful about that. But even he said, an ethical action is just a free choice, and there's really no reason to be ethical. Maybe immediately, well, yeah, if I kill somebody, I'll get killed or something, but, but uh, right now, but, but if you can get away with it, then you could do it. So there's no sort of intrinsic reason in action to make it ethical. There's just some circumstantial things. And even he said that, and that's a prevailing theory among current philosophers because of the basic nihilistic substructure of modern of modernity. Uh, and, and in Buddhism, that's not the case. For example, the reason you don't kill is that you are one manifestation of the life force. And your goal in evolving to ever more effective, ever more happy, ever more uh, prospering ever more, whatever it is, better way of living, better, better 
example of the life force, is to identify with as much other life force as possible and sort of connect more. And being human, we're very social and interconnectable. We're born in the mother from the mother's womb. We nurse at the breast, blah, blah. We're helpless for 10 years. So the more you sort of empathize with what's around you, the bigger your life force is. So when you take someone else's life away from them, then you're saying, I'm not, you and I are not the same. I am, your life force has nothing to do with me and I have nothing to do with it. And bam, I'm going to kill you. And so then you narrow your life force. And then you do you increase the boundary between yourself and other. And you get paranoid. Someone else is going to come and kill you. And then someone will actually, because then you'll kill more of them. And you're getting more and more in conflict. And your relationships are getting worse and worse. So saving life is expanding your life. And you know, there's an there's a argument in what I mentioned in the book among psychologists nowadays that they want to say there's no true altruism mm. because they notice that people who become altruistic get happier. So then they say there's a selfish motive to be altruistic, so it's really selfishness. <laughs> and, and what Buddha said was, that's great. That gives you a bonus. It's a bonus. That gives you a motive to do what's realistic yeah. of being really nice to other people and then you'll be happier. And as he likes to say, if you want to be happy, even selfishly so, then the best thing to do is to be compassionate. He said, because that the first person who you'll make happy, compassion means you don't, you can't tolerate others' suffering, and you want them to be happy. So the first person who gets happy when you start orienting yourself like that is you, and then right. then you get better at helping them be happy, and uh, that's just life, you know. So, and so, and so, therefore, they didn't say realistic and unrealistic because he was a Britisher. He had an empire. He was part of an empire. He protested its injustices, but he was part of it. And so, he thought we know what reality is. We have Maxwell. We we didn't have Einstein at that time, but we had, you know, we we are the smartest people ever lived. We we conquered everybody else. So we're the biggest mafia on the planet. That means we're superior, which I think is not correct, actually. I think that people they conquered were superior because they were more gentle, actually, and more vulnerable, actually, as we are going to discover now in the 21st century, I'm confident. We hope. Bob, um, we only have about five minutes left. You're oh. known as a world-class expert on Buddhism. And here in, in this new book, you've, you've given a, a very practical take with even inventive language for things like the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. I want to switch gears because you're a scholar of the world's yes. religions. Yes. And I want to ask you a question that came up while we were waiting for you uh, to start this from yes. uh, your yes. Justin. Today, we're recording this. It's uh, September 16th and happens to be Yom Kippur, the Jewish oh, holiday. And your friend Justin said you recently made a discovery about Moses. I did. And Just I today. Tell us about that in the Okay. Movie. Oh, thank you. That's so fun. Well, I did today. I had this wonderful thing. Well, you see, I the Dalai Lama's fourth aim in life is to bring back from Tibet some of the treasures of what he what 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 is called not just him, but since ancient time has been called Indian, Indian inner science. Because what Indian inner science was for 1500 or 1700 years 
it was an interplay between the Buddhist universities and because the monasteries were like, not like monasteries where you go to isolate. They were really universities and the people who were celibate and who they were like faculty members getting low pay. <laughs> all, they got, all they got was lunch. Adjuncts. They were they adjuncts. Were, that's right. They, and they were, well, they had tenure, some of them, but, but only on the basis of their deep insight and their brilliance and their wonderful writings and their ability to help others understand things. And so um, it's not on the basis of some whatever else it was. And, and, so, and so then that was knocked out of India when it first began to be you know, strongly conquered and managed by people who had different ideologies. First, a uh, bunch of people from Persia and Tajikistan and those places, Afghanistan, who had been tribes that had been newly unified by Islam, by the, whatever they understood of Islam, thinking of it as a conquering ideology, which was, was not the real heart of Islam, in my opinion. But, that, but that's how they learned it. They were illiterate people, mostly, and warriors. And then they conquered India. And then they said, what use are all these universities? And these guys in the guys and nuns in in orange uh, robes, saffron color robes, and huge libraries and things, and they don't produce any food, and they don't do anything. They don't even have babies, and they burned them all down. And then they lost that half, you could say, of the dialogue between those more connected to the Brahminical caste system and the Vedas and thing, and those who are more connected with the Shramana system. But, the, but, the, but it was the fertile dialogue between them that produced all their great yogas and all their great philosophical things, which Sanskrit philosophy, I'm sorry, Bert, Bertrand Russell was aware of it, actually, but most Western philosophers are not. But it's the most sophisticated and most ex sweetest, beautifulest thing, because the language is very, very beautifully adapted to philosophical thinking. And so he, his fourth aim in life is to bring it back. So... Uh, uh, I've been comparing and looking for where, but not as Buddhism, not as Buddhism, Hinduism needs Buddhism, no. Just as more kind of educational things, more curricular things, more methods of how to open your mind and how to think clearly and dialogue and analyze and so on. So, and, and so, and then in doing that, I, I came to the realization that the discovery that, that wisdom is bliss is trying to, is describing, is a discovery that reality itself is bliss. So it's like saying reality is love because that bliss always wants to overflow, share itself. And so it has energy and it's, it's, it's an it's a incredible and a miraculous concept that the, the most powerful foundational thing in the universe scientifically is this clear light of the void and infinite energy available to anyone who needs it. Okay, so which we call it love. It's like the love of nature, even you could call it, not a person. But then I then I encountered with Krishna, with Shiva, and of course that goes for the Abrahamic traditions with Yahweh or Yuh. The Jews are quite clever enough not to be able to pronounce the name, unlike the the the, the Christians and the Muslims. The Jews realize you shouldn't be naming this thing that is inconceivable to you, and they say God is love. So then, but when people think that. Then they, they and ascribe omnipotence to a personality. They think of it as like a bigger human or a bigger mother or father or something. Then there's always the problem that they there's a, there is suffering. So they did that omnipotent being caused that. So there's kind of a subliminal or subconscious suspicion of this omnipotent creature. But anyway, you love him and he loves you. You want him to love you. And then I thought about Moses. 
And I really, and then I would, yes, and then I thought that in those traditions, they teach you everything. And even there in the Hindu tantras, for example, or in Kabbalah, in Judaism, or in Christian mysticism, they will teach people, they have in history taught people to sort of get to the heart of God themselves and to realize things and open themselves to the inconceivability. So they have a complete path, all of the other traditions for sure. But the one thing is that because they think of God as omnipotent, they don't think he needs any help because you know you you want to draw him basking in his thing, but he takes responsibility for fixing things up, so to speak. He doesn't really need your help. So therefore, there's no bodhisattva vow, and there's no thing of, I'm going to become Buddha, the most capable and loving being among beings to help other people, and I'm going to join, I'm going to join the Buddha team, so to speak. There is no God team. There's some angels who do his bidding, but it isn't like other gods, more gods reproducing himself. In that sense, at the same level. And then I realized, well, of course, God gives the message that he needs help. He goes to Moses. And then I admitted that I used to put Moses down because when God gave him the very unsatisfactory answer of I am what I am, or however you translate it, he just let it be with that tautology. You know, yeah, okay, so you're you. So then I'll go do this senseless thing, which I'll go ask Pharaoh to let us go free, me and my people. And, he, and you're going to harden his heart so he won't agree. So you have a manipulative power to do that. Why don't you just tell him to let us go? Why do I have to hold this? You know, it's like I wanted him to do, I always wanted Moses to do that and be practical. <laughs> but then I realized that God was giving a teaching to everyone, starting with Moses, that he wants help. He needs it. And, he, and so he wants Moses to go there, be vulnerable for the mean Pharaoh, and then that will just show Pharaoh's mean nature being a slaveholder, <clears throat> you know, like a fossil fuel persons are today, the extension of the slaveholders. And, <clears throat> and he will want to punish you and imprison you or kill you and then keep your people in prison. And then you, you're going to run away with your people. And then I'll part the Red Sea and I'll do it. I'll, do, I'll show, my, show my competence that way. But, you, but I need you to sort of trigger the thing, you know. And so I need your help. Well, he isn't asking Moses to be God, but he's giving him a little magical power and he is he's needing help. And then, you know, you have those sayings in the, in the Abrahamic tradition, you know, God helps those who help themselves. And, or, and even, and Jesus is saying was God helps those who help others who are not so focused on themselves. And, um, and then there, so we need to find, then in my thing with India, I need to find where Krishna is saying, he needs help. And actually, there is a thing where Krishna gets in trouble with Mrs. Krishna, who actually is only a girlfriend at that point, Radha, because he can't not please all the cowherdists, the gopis who fall in love with him. So he multiplies his body to run around and make love with all of them, because he's omnipotent, he can do that. And then Radha says, me too. She starts the me too movement there. She says, okay, forget you. You go run around with all your gopis. I don't care if you're multiplying your body. It's still you. And you're my guy. And But if you're going to do that, you're not my guy anymore. I'm not going to even talk to you. And then it's a long story that's beautiful. It's called Gita Govinda. There's a beautiful story of how he has to win her back mm-hmm. and be repentant for having been a male chauvinoid and whatever it is. So he needs her help to do God's job in that case of making beings happy, you know, 
There's also well, we have to find that element in those monotheistic stories. There's, there's also, and, and we don't have much time, but there's also the story of Krishna when the, the great rains come and he has, and he protects the village by lifting the mountain. Yes, yes. So everybody can get under the yeah, mountain. Right. And he has everybody hold up a stick. So <laughs> they have the feeling of helping out. I see. Oh, good. All right. That's good. <laughs> Yeah, that's in other words, that by thinking that way about Moses at the end of the scene, for some reason popped in my mind. And by thinking that, I, uh, I, I, uh, I, I got a clue about the problem I'm thinking about in India and how to, in, and especially in the high level Tantra thing, how to see where we find leverage for something like the Bodhisattva Bao, and which is where the point of tension, of course, between Brahminical. Hinduism, Vedic Hinduism, and Buddhism was that Buddhism wanted the caste system to not be so rigid, and they wanted they wanted every individual to have the ability, who had the intelligence and the motive and the and the passion to try to discover what real reality is, to be free to do that, and they wanted the women to be free of the household and the and the childbearing, labor and cooking, cleaning, almost whatever everything, to be able to pursue their nirvana and their full blissful realization. They wanted that. And uh, and it's interesting. The reason that this I got this little clue today, learned this new thing in the process of, of uh, dialogue with students, having to do with Judaism. Because one of the things I've come to, lately to feel, which is to really admire Judaism very much, sort of in the lines of recognizing that Jesus, in fact, was a rabbi, and to all those people who are Semitic, Jesus is in fact Jewish. So what is this? You love Jesus, but you don't like Jews. That's completely self-contradictory and ridiculous. He was Jewish on purpose, even if you think he's God's only son. And my Tibetan Lama friends don't really go for that one because they say, they say, okay, you have four kids, right? And you insist that God can only have this one kid <laughs> <laughs> who speaks one language and have him at one time. <laughs> and that was that. Oh, actually... He's omnipotent, so you can't say what he has to do if you want to be really straight to your own thinking. So, so anyway, um, I really think Christians and Muslims and Jews would really get along really well, and they should all really get along well with Buddhists and Hindus. All of them keeping their own thing. I totally follow, and that's one of the things in that book, why I said realistic and unrealistic instead of right and wrong, and why I call them friendly facts instead of noble truths, is before friendly facts is because, I mean, and I'm not saying that was wrong, it's not, but I'm doing it because I want people to have access to the education without fearing they're going to lose their religion or they have to adopt another exotic, weird, alien religion, in which I'm just following my teacher, the, the Dalai Lama, his own Dalai Lama, who from even before we had the moral majority and, uh, you, know, li you know, Liberty University and the, sort of the idea that religion will have a powerful role in world or the Ayatollah. Even before we had all of that, uh, the Dalai Lama said, it's too dangerous in the modern world where all societies really are, have become pluralistic to have that degree of exclusivism in religions where you go out and try to convert people from their religion to your religion. And we really should quit it and we should reinterpret our theologies or Buddhologies or, or whatever they are, Taoologies, so that we can find the liberating, the saving grace, the liberating method in everyone, in their own terms. And, uh, and then we, can, we will not be fighting over market share 
and that which could become lethal and could become fatal in the, with all the weapon the way the weapons are in the world and and we mustn't and do that. that was really pretty he was really prophetic in a sense in saying that although i once said to him your holiness are you ready to be a prophet and he said heck no <laughs> <laughs> okay but he thought I, meant and I, I assume you would you would have the same answer if somebody asked you if you wanted to be a prophet what? what? I assume if somebody asked you that question, you would have the same answer. Yes, yes, of course. Well, that's that's no, 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 not quite. Because if you understand <laughs> prophecy as not just predicting the future, but you, but as involving speaking truth to power, then I try uh, it a little bit, although I'm very chicken hearted and I don't get out in the front of the protest or get beaten up. I think I, so far, anyway, I might eventually before I croak, because I can't stand it. I have grandchildren and great-grandchildren, and I can't stand these people continuous to build their coal-fired power plants and not being flexible enough to see another bigger picture. And, you know, Joe mentioned, if you ever listen to the podcast of Philip and Dennis, you know, you could make West Virginia into the ultimate spa paradise like thriving economy, every single coal mining family could become well paid to run these spas, to plant trees, to make gardens, close off those coal pits and don't send human beings out to dig there and these horribly unhealthy things. And you can do that if you just will turn the corner and stop, stop being bribed by the crazy people who just are making money temporarily out of coal and oil and gas and everything. And they think there's no other way to live they don't realize they'll be happier if they stop wrecking the planet for their own grandchildren. Bob, we have to go now. Uh, that's a okay. great way to end. And listeners, if you know anybody in West Virginia, send <laughs> them this recording. Get it to Bob Manchin. Get it to your own Joe senators Dear and your Joe own congresspeople. He's a really um, elegant guy. I love the guy. I just want him to have more fun than just uh, working for the coal mine owners. You know? They know so really... This is, this is engaged Buddhism at its best. And uh, Bob, we really appreciate your coming aboard. I want to remind everybody to go get Wisdom is Bliss. Four friendly fun facts that can change your life from an eminent scholar who is writing for the masses in this case and not uh, the tenured faculty. Thank you so, so much, Bill. I'm sorry I was late. I apologize. No, that's fine. And I, I should uh, uh, explain to our listeners that uh, Dennis was with us in uh, from Sweden and had technical difficulties, so had to he got cut off earlier. So, listeners, thank you for being with us. Uh, don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends about it. Let us know uh, if you have any other ideas for people we should interview and. Um, Bob, once again, thank you very much for all that. Thank you, Philip. Thank you so much. Really wonderful. Thank you there.